Alright guys, welcome to the show. I'm your host Mike and thank you for joining me for another episode of Amateur Alt Wars. We have another special episode because I have a guest. I'm not alone this uh, this week. So uh, I have with me my good friend David. I went to school with him and he is the World War II enthusiast. Like he, he knows everything there is about history, but especially World War II. And David, why don't you introduce yourself? Well, thank you Mike, it's good to be on your show. Uh, well, I mean, you, you, you're, being, you're being too kind. I don't know everything, but... You know a lot. <laughs> yes. There's always the best thing about World War II is it's one of those things where you, you can't know everything about. There's always something new, especially mm-hmm. when all these things are coming to light, especially in recent times. I mean, it's just, it, you can never know everything about, and there's always someone who knows more than you, and it's, it, it's a good aspiration, because there are other things where it's like, you can know everything, but then where do you go from there? Yeah. So, David, um... Tell us about yourself and, you know, why, well, you mentioned why you love uh, World War II, but, you know, you have a, you have a very interesting uh, persona, I don't want to say persona, you have a very interesting lifestyle, lifestyle. Oh, yes, yeah. why, don't, why don't you describe what I'm referring to and, right, and you're also your, your nickname, that yeah. your illustrious nickname that we know, <laughs> that everyone knows you out throughout uh, Arcadia. Yeah, apparently, I still don't know how that happened, but, because, um, uh, I mean, simply because like, it's, it's a campus where everybody here is so different. Uh, somebody once explained to me this. Well, you're just different in a different way. That's a good. That's a good way of putting probably it. Probably why, but it's just like I just don't understand like how it became like. It's like everybody seems to have heard of me still. It's insane. It's humbling, really. Mm-hmm. Well, anyway, so I've had a lifelong interest in World War II, um, and that sparked. Well, my grandfather served in the Navy during the war. Um, that's one thing. But another one was I actually was growing up in France in the early to mid 2000s, and France had never really owned up to less convenient truths about their record during the war. I mean, mind you, in fairness, you know, people make up, what for all these French surrender jokes, the only reason 300,000 British soldiers were able to evacuate Dunkirk is because several French divisions sacrificed themselves to hold off Rommel's panzers while they evacuated across the channel. Nobody remembers that. Um, by the time Normandy invaded, you had 400,000 men and women in the French resistance, according to a BBC documentary I saw. But... What they don't mention, what you know, and of course the French were very proud of that, as they should be. What they didn't mention until when I was a small child was that the first roundups of Jews in France weren't even done by the Gestapo; they were done by the French police. Mm-hmm. Um, and the fanatical last defenders of Hitler's bunker were French volunteers in the SS, mm-hmm. Spanish volunteers. Um, they don't, they didn't really like to pay attention to the fact that there had been rampant collaboration. Um, and the highest forms, and that many of the notorious collaborators never went to trial, never got in any trouble. Many of them were in positions of power and politically, socially. Um, there's an excellent documentary about it uh, called The Sorrow and the Pity. Uh, it's hard to watch. I actually had to stop watching it eventually because um, it was just it was that bad. You know, when you have these you know French aristocrats, you know, saying, oh well, you know, when you have all these Jews coming into the country, of course we did what we did. What would you expect? And the fact that this man was, you know, committed crimes, collaborated with the Nazis, and was never, you know, brought to trial, never uh, made to answer for them, it, it's infuriating. So I had to stop watching it. But I forget his name. When I was just about one years old, a uh, rather notorious collaborator went on trial, and that sparked this whole conversation. 
and for once the French people really started to own up to their role collaborating with the Nazis during the war, especially in the era in the area where I was at, because I lived near Lyon, which was the Gestapo headquarters uh, for the SS. I don't know if it was across the country, but it was the headquarters of an incredibly notorious SS officer named Klaus Barbie, mm-hmm. the, the butcher of Lyon. Um, who, of course, you know, the CIA knew about his whereabouts and uh, did absolutely nothing uh, to turn him in. Um, and so this, so all of this, this kind of um, repression of, of their history, kind of like choosing to, to forget, this is what sparked you and in your, in your well, interest in World War II. And it was the fact that they finally started to own up to it because it was the exposure. It was all over the news. It was all over the TV. Um, you couldn't, you know, you couldn't not see it on the TV all the time, you know, when I was growing up. And in France, things aren't as sheltered on the TV. They don't say, folks, you're about to, um, you're about to see something disturbing. Get your kids out of the living room. So I was really, it was the fact that they were starting to own up to it, and this massive conversation was sparked that I was so exposed to it, and that's what sparked the interest. And, of course, you know, my parents weren't thrilled about having to deal with their five-year-old son asking them what the Holocaust was or what the Nazi party was. Mm-hmm. But um, my parents were of the opinion that if you're old enough to ask the question, you're old enough to receive an honest answer. Um, so there was that. And it was also a previous interest in trains, because uh, a railway near where I, I lived, a narrow-gauge railway, and during the war, I believe it ferried guns and ammunition to the resistance. Um, my favorite era of transportation was always between the 1920s to the 1940s. My favorite entrance were from that era. I think those were the the golden year, so it was all that. And then I really got invested in the air war over Europe when I was about eight years old, I was in third grade. There's just something about B-17 pilots, the guys Mm -hmm. in the 8th Air Force. I mean, I just loved those guys as an eight-year-old. And then it just became an interest in all of World War II, not just the resistance you know, in France or the story of France in World War II, not just the air war, but all of World War II as a whole by the time I was in high school. And that led to an interest in the 1940s as a whole. It was, you know, World War II, the trains, the cars, the aesthetic, um, everything. And especially, like, the fashion of the era and just, you know, how everything looked back then. And one day I just looked at that and I thought, I want to look like that. I want to look like that. I want, you know, my environment to be like that. And when it comes to the ethics or when it comes to, you know, aspects of the culture, what attracts me the most about the 1940s is that there, there hasn't been a single moment before or after which the human race has been more united to common cause. Like people of every race and creed and political affiliation and you know, any, any, you know, any kind of distinguishing characteristic were involved in the fight against Nazism and Japanese and Italian imperialism. You know, they were united in that. And then, of course, you know, the look... You know, it's just everybody back then, the average person on the street just looked like a model. And I, I like that. So I started dressing like it was the 1940s on a regular basis. And I, you know, went for, got an old typewriter, a record player, toiletry kit. Um, and eventually people on my, well, people in high school first started calling me the 40s kid. And they carried over into university. And now everyone seems to call me that or know me by that. And you embrace that, that moniker, right? Like, yeah. It's not it. like, I feel like it was a little like facetious at first, like in high school, but now yeah. like, which is great, which is like one of the great things like I really like about you, man, is you, you had taken that and, and like we've had discussions, like you, you mentioned you had a problem with bullying in high school and yeah. like all these, you know, just worse, like, yeah. just like really like just mean spirited, like kids yeah but now it's like you've kind of taken that idea of like oh that's 40s kid and now it's like it's 
it's now like a positive identity that, and oh, now yeah. you, you've like a, you have a following on social media and yeah. if you want to plug that as yeah, well, my, my Instagram is that 40 kid, just that. And then the number 40 S K I D go follow it. And, and I'll link that in here as well. Yeah. But honestly, like, well, in fairness though, cause I, I, how naive I was, I didn't realize that people were calling I, the people that were calling me that were people I actually thought were my friends. Mm-hmm. Of course, then, you know, when I really started to get into it and they thought, oh, this 1940s thing is really serious. They, you know, abandoned me because they thought, you know, they care more about their so-called reputation um, and so-called reputation instead of, you know, sticking to their, their friend, which is funny because I wonder how many of them enjoy watching 13 Reasons Why, unironically, not realizing that there are people like yeah. that why that girl killed herself. And that's a conversation for another day, but I, yeah. I, I really, but yeah, but so, and what I can, all I have to say is like what we would say in Philly is fuck them, but, um, yeah, fuck them, yeah. and, but so, and like, that's kind of that, that brief history of, you know, why you were getting into World War II and, and I'm just listening to you, like I, um, and I think that listeners can now determine, you know a lot about history and this is a big reason why. I, sh- I do have to add another thing. That generation was called, the, another thing that attracts me to them is that that generation was the greatest generation. And I have to say something that, you know, is going to be very surprising for someone my age with my interests. Um, they, and I'll tell you this, well, there, there was nothing great about them. What made them the greatest generation was that they were ordinary people called on to do the extraordinary and did so. And I have to say, they're not too different. Before Pearl Harbor, they weren't too different from, you know, what the negative characterization of millennials are. They didn't, you know, give a, you know, they didn't give a hoot in hell about some, you know, mud hut in China or the war in Europe or about some bombed out, you know, family home in London. They didn't care about them. They had their heads in the sand. They cared, you know, the average World War II veteran, I've talked to guys who served in combat who have all these medals on their chest. And, the, you know, I said, you know, I've asked them, you know, what did you think about the American involvement, America getting involved in the war before Pearl Harbor? And the average response is, son, I was too busy mooning over the redhead in my philosophy class to bother thinking about Hitler's armies marching through Western Europe. Mm -hmm. And so now I'm thinking about my generation. You know, okay, yeah, some of us are entitled to shits. I should know. I go to a liberal arts school. (laughs) Some of us. But I look at most of the people in my generation. I look at most of the people I go to university with at this liberal arts college, and I see hope, and I think we're not so bad. We're going to turn out all right because I, I think that we're, we have the potential of being the next greatest generation. We're already doing so many great things like our grade especially and the, you know, your grade and our grade. I mean, we're already going out and getting professions. Um, we're going to become teachers and I mean we're pursuing our careers. You know, Yeah, you had a, a couple of people you know, in university. You have a couple of people who just can't handle it and, and drop out, but that's you know, literally a handful of people. Most of us here – are pursuing the same dream that we hope to achieve, or a different one, but with the same fervor that we were trying to achieve four years ago when we first came to Arcadia. And you know, I, I don't think the rap that we get is very fair. Yes, sir, there are some, enti- you know, there's a very entitled minority with a very loud voice, the so-called social justice wars, but they are a minority. Most of us, I think, are a good bunch. We've been dealt a crap hand, and we're getting blamed for it. It's not our fault that baby boomers destroyed the economy. Mm-hmm. We're getting blamed for it. It's not our fault that we're, you know, it's like, in, you know, we shouldn't be criticized. Like, like we get criticized for having an opinion, but then we get told, oh, well, you know, we're not opinionated enough. But I, I think that with all that and the fact that we're still handling it and the fact that most of us, you know, I look at most of the people I could just go to university with and I think we're going to turn out all right. If this is, if this is the future of mankind, 
I'm not worried. <laughs> I think that the millennials have are will can be and might just be the next greatest generation in different ways. You know, I really like that, David. And and I, I great words of wisdom and, and just like, you know, inspiration. So but let's talk about the original greatest generation, and let's and we'll we'll, now we'll, we'll segue into Dunkirk. So, like I, I was telling you before this, why I wanted you to have be on the show is because I think you're gonna help add that interesting historical perspective right. that many people might not have going into this film, especially, um, and that that stuff always intrigues me. And I also want to talk about like the accuracy of this film. Because one thing I was telling you about and for future episodes is I want to sit down and have a segment where we talk like we sp- we pick a specific World War World War II movie or just a war film in general uh, with historical context. And then we would talk through it in the cinematic and, and, and the um, theatrical narrative components of it, but also the accuracy of it. Because I think that's a lot of pe- uh, things that or those are the components that a lot of people forget about. Oh, yeah. So getting into Dunkirk, the film, the 2017 film, because there was, I think it was in the, do you know when the original, there was a there was a film Dunkirk. I can't remember if it was this, I think it was like 56. It was like more of a straightforward narrative of Dunkirk mm. that I think you would think of like more traditional like filmmaking, like it's it's narrative, and we'll get into all that with this film. There's actually, there's also, an er- I think the earliest mention of it in a movie was a movie called 19, uh, from 1942 called Mrs. Miniver, and I mean, it, it gets mentioned very briefly, and of course, you know, it's just a bunch of, you know, little toy boats being dragged along by string all at the same speed, but I mean, it's a war film, it was only part of the movie, but I think that's, first movie I can think of where Dunkirk actually gets gets mentioned. Uh, there's also, I think it's has to have been featured in uh, Why We Fight by Frank Capra. Mm-hmm. Um, but definitely, I, I do agree with you on that, because, I mean, you know, me personally, I, I'm I'm a detail man. You know, it's all about the details for me. You know, my wardrobe, I'm an artist, and for me, I'm, I'm a detail-oriented person, and, you know, when I paint something, I want to get in every detail, so I personally care about that. Um, but, I, 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 you know, some people might say, oh, well, you know, maybe you're being too much of a stickler for details. Um, and in some, like with some movies, that, you know, Perhaps you'd be right. I mean, The Sound of Music, for instance, yeah, you know, um, escaping to Switzerland, singing across the Alps is a lot more interesting than, you know, the real story in which the, the real Von Trapp simply just left their home, uh, home in the dead of night mm-hmm. and just took the night train to Italy. That's not as interesting yeah. as, you know, going through the Alps singing. Um, but I think with stuff like like Dunkirk and war films, I think that if you want to do justice, if you want people, people to understand, like... It, it, isn't the whole point of it for people to understand, like, you know, what it was like to actually be there? If that's the point, then yes, every detail matters. Um, and I think, you know, obviously the best war scene in history, at least with World War II movies, would be Saving Private Ryan. It was so accurate that um, they had to set up hotlines for veterans. Oh, yeah. So accurate that the guy who was doing the German dubbing, he'd been a World War II veteran himself. He had to drop out because it was just becoming too much for him. Mm-hmm. That That's the kind of effect that you want, because I mean, war is such a unique experience, you can't simulate it, you can't recreate it, but you can try and come damn close. War is one of those things where you don't know what it was like, you can't imagine what it was like unless you were there, and for every single person, it's going to have been different. But I think the ultimate thing, the ultimate effect that you could get is if you get people to be absolutely terrified, Mm because they were all terrified, they'll all tell you, anybody who says they were terrified wasn't there, is is a liar or is just simply too stupid to know better 
Um, and I think one, one, one series that definitely comes to mind with absolutely horrifying is the Pacific. Mm-hmm. Uh, have you seen it? Oh, of course I have. I mean, just seeing the blood and the gore. I mean, they didn't they didn't leave anything out. Um, they, they did not leave anything out. I think that's in that sense. If you want to show the horror of war, I can't think of anything better than that aside from why we fight, because that has actual footage of the real thing. But then again, this actually reminds me of this little challenge I did on Instagram. Uh, I remember the first time. I was in an environment where everything is exactly what I've seen in the 1940s. It was an old railway station. I mean, not a detail was spared. They even had like the little tape X's over the windows for you know when a bomb hits, the shockwave doesn't send the glass shattering everywhere. And like, there wasn't a modern thing inside. And you know, it was absolutely, har- it wasn't har- it was you know absolutely humbling experience. Just like this is history of the 1940s as they saw. And I started this little challenge on there where you just filter to black and white and what you would have seen with your own eyes. So the newsreels are one thing, but seeing it in, in grainy black and white film and knowing that it's the real thing is another. But then if you have like an incredibly accurate depiction of it. In like 4K and it's 4K. not grainy. Like you, you could see everything. Exactly. So you have that and then you have the concentration camp scene in Band of Brothers in a way. Oh, yeah. It doesn't top the real thing, but what you would have seen with your own eyes, like that's the closest you'll ever. Yeah, get. it's a new sense of immersion, and and I and so you're hitting on a lot of things that I think what makes this Dunkirk film very exceptional in that it's really portraying that terrifying. Because you can watch a film and there's always that sense of like, okay, I'm not there. Like there's a sense of detachment and like. And it doesn't like you're just like okay yeah like you can feel you can empathize with people and like that's kind of what I think I feel like a lot of war uh, depictions try and get at it's just empathizing yeah. or empathy uh, like the like the Patriot one of the most historically inaccurate films oh, yeah. ever made like that's all about like I mean that's all about like uh, like uh, nationalistic themes of just like yo rah rah go America which is why I dislike the film like hell yeah it's entertaining is is shit but it's like. But, but I mean, it's not even that great of a movie, but from like a raw, raw go America that like, yeah, fuck yeah. But every other aspect, it's not. But this film does not want to do that. And but before we get into that, I want to ask you, like, how do you feel about Christopher Nolan? Well, I mean, because he's a very like if you look at and like I'm like I'm a huge film guy. And so like looking at and I've seen all of his films, like looking from his first film following going to you know the batman franchise to interstellar like he's literally been everywhere he's been on the ground into the the grimy cities he's been in outer space and beyond and now he's tackling world war ii but not in like the sense that you would think like he's not going into the he's i guess the the trenches per se he's i mean there are trenches and stuff but it's more he's going to the beaches instead of what you like he's not doing like the bulge or or more I mean, I don't even say well known because Dunkirk is extremely well known in history, mm, um, or not as much as you'd think. Yeah. So, what is your opinion of Nolan? If you if you even have well, one? I mean, I've have seen all those films. I've seen which which Batman films has he done? Because I haven't seen all. Oh, of he's done he's done uh, Batman Begins, Dark Knight, and Dark Knight Rises. So okay, he's well, done I've like seen, the I've most. Seen, I've seen everything except ones. the last one. Um, I've seen Interstellar. Um, you can put all of them together next to each other. And you can tell that they were made by the same guy. Uh, I, I think that he's he's very very talented. And honestly, he's a stickler for. You can tell what I appreciate is that like with Interstellar, you can tell he's a stickler for details. My father is a physics teacher, and he you know 
as much he said that as much as was possible, Christopher Nolan actually got a lot of the physics in Interstellar. Right? Oh yeah, the theory, right? Um, and most physicists would tell you. Oh, that. there's well, there's a book. He had Kip Thorne as a uh, as a um, consultant, and they actually wrote a book, The Science of Interstellar, where they pretty much break down every single aspect. Which, and I've read it. Well, okay. I preface, I've read the first, like, 50 pages, because once you start getting to theoretical and, like, the black holes and stuff, that's when I had an aneurysm, and I just had to stop. So, because it's just so intense. Yeah. But what you're saying, like, he, well, he's an auteur, like you mentioned, um, that's a definition of an auteur. Like, yeah. you can, like, watch something that he has done without any, knowing anything of it other than just, like, the, the visual medium, and then you can say, that's Christopher Nolan. But... You were saying he's his attention to detail, yeah. and I think that his his strongest suit is attention to detail because Dunkirk is a film all about details in its props, in its um, in its in, in its uh, presentation, in its narrative. That, now that you mentioned that, I'm so surprised that he managed to get it down so down packed. Because I mean, with, you know, like with movies like um, like Interstellar, or like the Star Trek movies and stuff like that, you usually have a team of scientists that you know say you know this is plausible, this is realistic, this is feasible. Um, which sets us apart actually from movies like like Star Wars because like some stuff is just like it's just not possible. Oh, that's just fantasy at it's that just point. Fantasy. But know, sometimes actually, because like with Star Wars, like like lightsabers, it's just just aren't possible. Um, the technology behind Darth Vader's suit, half of it already exists. Mm -hmm. So, so it's that mixing, it's like, yeah. What I'm wondering is just like, you know, I can't imagine he had that many advisors who were actually there for the Dunkirk movie because most of them are dead. Mm -hmm. Most of them are dead because I mean that was early on in the war. I mean most most of the World War II veterans you have that are still alive today are people who were born between you know twenty four, twenty five, twenty six, and of course you know at least two hundred and fifty thousand plus these states alone who lied about their age. Um, but I'm, I'm wondering because mo most of them are dead, and yet you have movies like Battle of the Bulge, which was so bad that Eisenhower complained, <laughs> and yet you had four advisors, Joachim Piper. Yeah, yeah, Joachim, he was the guy responsible for the Malmody massacre. Okay. Um, he was there as an advisor. Omar Bradley was there as an advisor. I think mm. somebody was there. You had several guys who were top brass from Battle of the Bulge who were there as advisors, and yet it was it was terrible. It was a terrible movie. So I'm wondering how he's managed to pull that off with that, because I doubt he could have had that many people who were actually there. He might have had some. And it's And it's interesting, because he, like, we looked this up before we started talking, like, who wrote this film? And... As far as I can tell, Christopher Nolan has like sole writing credit, which is even more incredible. When well, let me let me ask you. Um, one, just kind of briefly fill us in on Dunkirk, because you were mentioning that like it's 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 a really well known. Well, I would argue, it's, I think a lot of people know what Dunkirk is, but they don't know what Dunkirk is. So if you want to briefly fill us in on that, and also tell us like kind of your how did you take just on like a general term like the accuracy. Of the film, just on more of a general, because we'll get nitty gritty in a second, um, because there are some things I want to ask you about the details of it. Uh, but like, how accurate Does any, was? Do any of them have to do with that USA Today article that mentioned la lack of diversity in the film? Do you remember that article? Lack of diversity in a film that all was all about like only white men were there. Is that? I mean, and I mean, I guess like the French soldiers. Well, I mean, I don't, I want to know, but I, well, I, I'll tell, I'll tell you something. Well, that's just in case you were wondering, it's about details. There was some, you, there you're was, more inclined to answer that than I am. There was some USA article today saying, you know, oh well, it's just it's it's only white men. You know, who cares about historical accuracy? Why aren't there any women? Why aren't there any minorities? And I'm looking at this, and I'm thinking, well, obviously you haven't seen the film because they were there, and they were also there in real life. You had Indians both Sikh and Muslim, 
were part of the British Expeditionary Force. You had French, North African, you know, Algerian, Moroccans, um, you know, African troops serving alongside the French, and uh, many women were part of the civilian fleet that went to Dunkirk in real life, and all of those people are featured in the movie. I think the argument is that, like, yeah, they're there, but they, I, I think they are more, like, playing devil's advocate, that they're more, like, kind of background cameos. Like, I remember, like, I, we, like, I watched a film yesterday, and, like, there were some, um, like, Africans in, in the French army, but they were just kind of there, and I think some people might argue that it's just there just to say, like, they're there. Well, that reason, well the reason why there was only so few of them there is because most of them were busy holding off the German to bu Germans to buy time for the British to evacuate, and then they went into captivity, and many of them were brutally murdered by the Germans. And, like, this is another thing, like, with... with the, well, for, so why don't you briefly describe what the event of Dunkirk was to right. the listeners, in case, like, some... Because I feel like people have a general... If they're listening to this, they have a general idea of what Dunkirk was. Like, I have a pretty general idea, well, especially from the film, which yeah. I appreciate. But you... So let's briefly talk about what... Dunkirk was well. Of course, you know if, if you want to watch a good documentary that covers it, there are several. There's an episode on the Battle of France or something like that. It does cover Dunkirk at length, which is it's a, it's a very it's it's an old series, but it makes up for it in its content and the fact that it has interviews of people who were there who long since dead. It's called The World at War. It's narrated by Laurence Olivier, and it, I mean it has testimony from. It has it has interviews, you know, among other people, Albert Speer, um, and Hitler's secretary, and all these top brass in the British and American military. Um, I'd highly recommend seeing that. It's a good documentary. Um, but the long and the short of it is, Britain, well, the Allies had not prepared themselves for the war. They were still, you know, their heads were still, the mindset was still stuck in 1918, where you know. Build defenses like the Maginot Line was the answer, and they didn't have. I think a lot for every one person like Churchill who knew what needed to be done and who knew that they were going about things the wrong way. You had a lot more people in the powers that be that lacked the vision to realize just how much of a threat mechanized warfare was. And I mean, the, even the Spanish Civil War hadn't been enough of a wake-up call for them. And only by 1938 did they start to ramp up, to rearm, to build aircraft. And but by then, I mean, war, you know, I, I think that by 1937, war was going to happen anyway. It was the year of no return. It was World War II was going to happen after that point because I mean, you had the war in China, which, as far as I'm concerned, is when World War II really started. Mm -hmm. The Spanish Civil War was a, a trailer for what was to come, um, and so. I think everybody with with the you know lightning warfare, everyone was really caught with their pants down, um, and on top of that, you had, I mean, the morale with the Germans was so high. Morale doesn't win wars, but I mean, just after this you know sweeping campaign in Poland where they they took it in five weeks or something like that, and then they just swing over and they've gone, they've blasted through the Low Countries, they've. Um, you know, yeah, blessed through the low countries and, you know, just absolutely unstoppable with state-of-the-art um, tanks and aircraft, which were completely legal to build. I mean, because on top of the head morale, you know, basically like all these things were, that they just rolled out, you know, people you know, would say, but that's illegal. But 
fuck you, we built it anyway. <laughs> Meanwhile, the you know countries that did adhere to those, you know, you know, that, that did, you know, disarm, when they did rearm, they were equipped with these outdated tanks, they were outnumbered, outgunned, um, their tactics were uh, antiquated by that by that point. I mean, some of the tactics were absolutely medieval. Um, but in the long and the short of it was that, well, I mean, the British Expeditionary Force was a formidable force, but they were outnumbered. Um, the RAF had, you know, sent, you know, what, they, what aircraft they were able to send were decimated by the immensely superior Luftwaffe because not only were their aircraft better, they had more of them, and many of the pilots had either flown, had already had combat experience in Poland and Spain, or were under the tutelage of people like Adolf Galland, uh, who had already had such experiences. Um, and then, of course, you know, uh, Doubting, uh, I think he was, I forget what his rank was at the RAF at the time, but he told Churchill, he said, you can't send any more aircraft. We have to save as, as much as we can for the upcoming invasion of Britain. So their air power was one of the first things to go. Um, and in the end, we had about 300,000 men trapped at the beaches at Dunkirk. I'm, I'm skipping several details because I'm, they're, they're, I'm forgetting them at the moment. I've probably forgotten a lot of important details. So I have a but, question. Why exactly were the guys like stationed in Dunkirk or like kind of, I'm assuming like that was like the central area, but why were they there? Well, actually, well, I mean, that's just where they evacuated to. I, for, I forget. I think it's, uh, there, there is a reason for this, but I, I think that it's just that they, it just happened. I think, um, and somebody can correct me if I'm wrong about this, but I think it's the reason why it was Dunkirk. Um, and it wasn't even the closest place to the channel. I don't believe, I think Calais is a bit closer I think it was just because it's they had nowhere else to go because he had the the German um, you know pincer movements you split their forces in half and circle each you know force in half until there's none left um, and uh, whatever forces that uh, do manage to break out uh, can be encircled once again um, I'm probably getting this detail wrong I'm, I'm so rusty about this this part uh, even though I did try and brush up on it oh no it's fine so, so I mean that's now we know why they're there the reason why is they were just absolutely encircled at Dunkirk they were trapped like rats and um, basically the, the reason and they were at the beach they were trying to evacuate mm -hmm. um, and in the meantime the French were buying time for them oh yeah which is which is one of which is one thing that the, I just want to mention quickly in the film like that was one of my first notes I was like as much as, like you said, like, there's those jokes of, like, ah, oh, the French surrender, like, they are the one, like, so we open the film with this, um, with just this patrol, I guess, British patrol going by, and you get those pamphlets, like, we surround you, like, this yeah. fear tactic, and then the whole squad gets annihilated, except for, I don't want to say a protagonist, like, one, one of the main characters, he jumps over, and then there's, like, um, there's a bit, um, the French are just held up in this one, like this point in the road. Yeah, sandbags. You know? Yeah, and then and then the and then he goes and he's like, "Oh, I'm, I'm British," and then they let him pass, and then they're they they they're holding, and then you get these instances throughout um, of the film when the 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 officers, high-ranking officers, are talking, saying, "Yeah, the French like they're holding out, but they it's not enough," and then you know at the end of the film, the naval officer says, "I'm not leaving the French," and I think that is great. Like that's a really Interesting again details that no one is choosing to include of like the French didn't run if it wasn't for the French 
the British wouldn't have... I mean, I would make the assertion that they wouldn't have been able to really evacuate in the time that they had. Right. And But so, let's, like, rewind the clock, like, a year. What would, So you saw Dunkirk, and honestly, it's another reason this is, like, kind of special for our relationship is because it's kind of the film that really got us, like, speaking. I remember, yeah, because I Because I reached out to you and said, what did you think of this film? Because I knew you were, like, posting about it. Yeah. So that was another reason why I wanted to bring this up, because now things have come full circle. But what was your, like, so you're, you just... You just walked out of the movie theater of July of 2017. Yeah. What was your initial reaction, like your gut feeling, as soon as the credits rolled and you walked out of that theater? Oh, I didn't, I didn't, I didn't want to move. I, I, I just stood there because I mean, the the part that got me for whatever reason there was one part where I cried. Was just seeing all those boats, just, like seeing all these beautiful, brightly colored boats. After seeing like all of that horror and devastation, all these beautiful, brightly colored boats with, you know, this this one woman standing with one foot, at, you know. On the edge of the boats, you know, like it's just like you know, just something so peaceful and so you know colorful and bright, just coming out of the fog, and it's just like that. That that got me for whatever. Well, yeah, reason. it's it's a beautiful scene because it's like the whole film is just literally depressing after depressing note, but then finally it's um and and you're just like root. It's like all these guys go through so much in the film, like all this, and you're seeing like all this death and destruction, and like nothing is working out, but then the home front comes and saves the day. Like, the civilians take it upon themselves to come, and it's, like, now... And then, like, that's what ultimately completes the evacuation of the beaches. Yeah. And you're just, like, this is... Like, it's, like, a really high note, and and you're just, like, okay, this is... No matter what, like, things can work out, especially, like, knowing history of how things turn out. But, no, it's, it's a powerful moment when they just turn, and it's just, like, they're coming. Yeah. It's like, just England like, came to it, us. It's almost... It's almost absurd it's just like after all this horror and devastation you see all these you know brightly colored little you know leisure boats it's almost absurd in a, in a good way um well there you get the character of the so I, I only know one character's name and that's george yeah. i don't know any of the other characters names which is a point we can talk about i don't necessarily think that it's a bad idea but i think it's a point that should be brought up but um the 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 old man I should say I guess who's who's um taking upon himself to captain his own boat across the channel, and what he says to um Killian Murphy's character when he refuses to go back to Dunkirk he's like there won't be a home if we don't do this and like we have a duty and I think that's really poignant and like really powerful for and like and that kind of sums up the whole mentality of like this character is is kind of the um the representation and embodiment of pretty much the, the the spirit of the English people yeah. that came across the channel. And there's a movie theory about it that actually says that he was that, that more than likely he'd been a World War One veteran. I can see that. With his, I mean with his age and also I mean you know the things that he said. And the fact that he was so he was unusual I mean this is the nineteen forties. I mean, you know, shell shock is hard, you know poorly understood these days. That's a great point. But uh, I mean back then, you know, for, he, he, I mean you do I'm sure you notice that he was especially understanding of just how stricken we well, yeah, Mur- there's, like, there's a character of, uh, of George and he's like, Oh, is he a coward? Or, or the father, whichever uh, the, one of the characters says, is he a coward? And he says, no, he's not himself. Like he's seen things. Especially, like he understands. Especially, That's in, an really era, especially in an era like that, only a veteran would, would fully understand. Yeah. Who's seen it firsthand. Yeah. So, but yeah, so you were obviously gripped by the film, oh, yeah. and like the whole time. And I, honestly, I had a very similar reaction. I saw this film, but I so the first time I saw it twice in theaters. The first time I saw it, I originally was gonna do like a double feature, like just some random day. It's like right. let's just like like treat yourself, and 
I was going to go see Dunkirk, and then I was going to go see Atomic Blonde. Now, Dunkirk I, was the first film that I saw, and the f- and Dunkirk wiped me out that I just went home right after, and I didn't see Atomic Blonde. But Dunkirk... No, that's a good movie, though. Which one? Atomic Blonde. Oh, yeah, I, I've, I've since seen it. But the fir- but I the film resonated so deeply with me that I think like that day, or it was like the day after... It was, it was in that immediate vicinity. I recorded the episode that is still available, and I listened to it for this to prepare. And I actually saw it again with my grandparents and my right. mom. And so they had a lot of things very similar to me. But oh, they even got that detail. Right? Yeah. What what detail is that? Oh, you, you just, you just yeah. pulled out your iPad. Because we, we were eventually going to go back to detail. I just wanted to check if I got that right. But anyway, yeah. So you saw it with you with your parents. I mean, your grandparents. Were were they old? Like, they were kids during the war. You yeah, said. they were. Were they old enough to have remembered it, or they definitely remember? They must have been. I think my grandparents were born in like thirty-five, something yeah, around that time. So like they would, they would remember. They were kids, so they would, they were like the kids that were probably like banging pots and pans, like collecting like well, steel for the for like the troops or something. Well, like yeah, that. I mean, actually, you know, being a child during the war in the United States, you know, you, you know, Christmases and birthdays were a little more scarce, but actually, it was. From a lot of people I've talked to who were children during the war in the United States versus people who were kids in the war during Britain, I mean, the kids, in the, the people who grew up in the, in the States during the war, you know, I'm not going to say they had it well, but it was, it was nothing about oh, being a kid during the war ex- in, yeah. in Britain or in France or Poland. Well, or yeah, because the United States is just, is isolated from the entire conflict. Like, there's – and, and the, that goes into the history of, of future wars. But, yeah, I, I completely agree. Like, I mean, you if you were a kid in Europe – you're probably scared shitless. Yeah. You're a kid in, in, kid in Britain, definitely scared. you were scared that a bomb was going to fall through your, your window or something like that. Yeah. Like, it was different fears of the different um, countries and, and locations and locales. But, yeah, the American kids, like, yeah, you know, there's still... Mean, the, the only civilians that got... I mean, aside from the, whenever civilians were killed at Pearl Harbor, the only civilians in the United States that were killed... Well, okay, what people often forget is that there were many civilians... In American protectorates like Guam and the Philippines, they mm-hmm. take prisoner by the Japanese, and they were put in, you know, concentration. Yeah, that's often overlooked. But in continental United States, the worst thing that ever happened was that you had a Japanese pilot who launched from a submarine aircraft carrier. He dropped a few incendiary bombs over the Oregon forest, tried to put, you know, set a, you know, try to start a, you know, a wildfire. The fire department put it out quickly, and uh, many years later, he came to that town and gave him his samurai sword as reconciliation. Mm-hmm. And aside from that, the only people I can think of that were in the continental United States that were killed by enemy action was that the Japanese would take these bombs and put you know put parachutes on them, basically these balloon bombs, and they'd use the wind current. It was rather clever. It didn't work, but it was a clever idea to ride across the ocean and land the continental United States. And most of them were duds. Many of them fell into the ocean, but one had landed and went off in front of a pastor and his wife and their two t- kids going to Sunday service. Mm. And meanwhile, you have all these mass casualties of civilians in Britain and yeah. continental Europe. Like it just, it's just, it's like, it's, they can't, they're not even, they're not even the same sport. Like you can't even compare the two. No. But yeah, so I, that's how like speaking, like how this film, like how powerful I thought this film was. And then uh, it's something that I haven't returned to except for this review because of I think of what it does really well. Um, I because so when I was doing reading reviews, I was actually reading like a lot of mixed reviews about this film. I and I think it's for kind of like stupid reasons, and not even uh, maybe that's not even the best way to put it. Like I just think that's like the people are missing the point of the film. So like 
So what did you think about the nonlinear construction of the narrative? Did you think it worked? Now, I have to admit, like, it's not perfect, but I think it adds to this overall theme. There, so there's two points that I want to ask you about. So there's the nonlinear component of the narrative, and then there's the idea that there's no, like, central character. Yeah. And, like, like I said, like we said earlier, like, I I only know one character's name, and that's George. Yeah, of course, you don't see a single German. You don't see a single that's another German interesting uniform. Thing. I mean, you don't see a... Which is deliberate, because I think that that depiction of, like, it's it's kind of making the Germans even more menacing, and they were at that time. Like, they're, like, at the peak of their power. That, that's realistic, point. but they, they, they were at the peak of their power, you know, for whatever reason, they just rolled up and they stopped. They rolled up all of Western Europe and they just stopped right outside of Dunkirk. And so the people in the British Expedition Air Force, they knew the Germans were there, but they just couldn't see them. Mm-hmm. They weren't with the nice that they knew they were there. They knew they could attack anytime. That's the psychological part. But about the nonlinear storyline... You know, honestly, I it wouldn't have occurred to me what a good idea it would have been if it hadn't been done. But I, I think that it's really good because, like, yes, it's narrative. But, I mean, you said it once quite well. It's like, you know, how much more interesting would it be? It's like, oh, well, you know, oh, I'm from here. I have a wife and kids. I'm fighting in the war. And then I go through this linear storyline, and this is what ultimately becomes of me. Meanwhile... You just have this non-linear storyline. It's confusing. And that, that we're talking about putting people there. I mean, that that's there's nothing more confusing than being in the middle of a war. Um, and I, I think that it's definitely a, a great device. I mean, you see it in Pulp Fiction. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's just like Pulp Fiction is a film that's supposed to be about you know the, the absolute how just how absurd and obscene and confusing human beings can be. I mean, war is obscene. War is absurd. Um, I think that it, it does add to that. It definitely adds to the, you know, being there, the confusion. It's just like, you know, what is the point of having a narrative? I think that's one of the things that really killed Saving Private Ryan, is that the first part was absolute chaos, absolute confusion, and the rest of it is some boring storyline. And, and, like, that's what I, I think... Everyone's asking, like, okay, there's no central character, but I would argue that the central character is, is the Dunkirk. is the event of Dunkirk. Oh, I agree. Because because and I think that's one. It's the non-linear. So Christopher Nolan, throughout his pretty much all of his his films, time is a very core component. Whether it's very direct yeah. with something like. The Dark Knight Rises. There's a there's a there's a like a, literally a ticking time bomb. That yeah. Nukes and, stuff. and there's Interstellar where it's all fluid. Yeah. Like and there's like all this like yeah and like Interstellar with like you know the black hole like manipulating time and things like that. And then and then you get films where it's more a little bit more subtle. Um, and it, it more ingrained into the ideas of and the themes of the film. So you get like you know Memento told backwards but still like chronologically but you still jump from time you're jumping all around but it still makes sense uh inception uh obviously there's like that actually oh well it's if it's i recommend it because you know you have a lot of things of you know slowing time and things like that but then there's just this theme of you know missing out on time and things and you know it's 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 a very like pretty deep and complex film um and then i mean and then you get this film, where I, I think this is more subtly with the themes, and that yes, it can it contributes to the overall confusion of what warfare is, and because there's moments when you so there's the three segments: there's the mole, which is one week, the sea, one day, and then the air, one hour. And there's moments when uh, you're focusing on Tom Hardy's 
uh, Air Force pilot, and he's going by, and then it cuts to the characters in the mole, or the, or the land, I should say, and it's night. And, you, and, and it happens simultaneously, where it cuts from light to, uh, light to night, back to day, and, and it's kind of disorienting, and that's what turned a lot of people off, but to me, again, just hit, hitting this idea of confusion of war, like, that's what everyone was feeling yeah, at this would, point. You would have felt the same way if you'd been there, yeah. And, and, and even then, like, and so that's what I, I think is, I, I immediately loved the, the nonlinear story of this. I thought it really worked in favor of it, so, and, and so that's, so that's that, but I, Trying to look at, um, I I did type some notes. A lot of it was just kind of keeping up with the, um, it was keeping up with the like kind of the plot, so I could think of some areas. Um, but let me let me ask you, tell me about the accuracy of the movie, in your opinion. Oh well, the uh, the only inaccuracy I saw, as far as I'm concerned, they're probably you know. Um, reenactors and experts on uniforms and events and all that. Well, I mean, they, they would probably, you know, come up with a couple ones, but as far as I can remember, the only inaccuracy I noticed was beyond forgivable, and that's the fact that um, I think the, air, the aircraft, the, the German aircraft that were used that were real, I think some of them might have been remote-controlled or digital. But, oh, yeah, no. Know, some of them were, but sometimes they used real aircraft. And I think that's great because, unfortunately, you know, as much as I enjoyed Red Tails when I first saw it, you know, when I was 14, um, then you have to look at it and you think all these CGI aircraft, you know, it's like, um, you know, look at the maneuvers they do and, you know, just how fast they go. It looks all right when it's Revenge of the Sith and it's that battle over Coruscant, but it doesn't look good on P-51. Mm -hmm. um, and, of course, you know, ugh, the markings. Don't get me started on, <laughs> on the markings that they had in Red Tails. But so the detail I found... The, the inaccuracy I found was, that was forgivable was the fact that the real German aircraft used were actually not German, probably weren't built during the war, were actually built by Spain. Um, because after the Spanish Civil War, Franco was so impressed with the Stukas and the 109s and the 111s that he commissioned the Luftwaffe, well, basically, you know, asked for a license to build them. And during up until 1943, they were built as the rest of the German, like the 109s at least, were built with the the same motors. Um, you actually notice the 109s, Heinkel, Stukas were built with the same motors that the ones the Luftwaffe had. You know, the Daimler-Benz engine for the 109, the Yumo, uh, Yumo. So I forget what, what model it is for the Stuka. And oh, I forget. What, I think it's I think it's also a Daimler-Benz engine for the Heinkel, but it's definitely a DB601, DB605 one or both that was used in the 109, but then 1943, when the war was starting to get really bad for the Germans, the um, Spanish had no choice but to build their own motors, which were Spanos Suiza, which are four propellers instead of three. And on the outside, you can tell it's a different motor. Uh, and then later on, I believe the motors were built by Rolls-Royce after the war, mm -hmm. where these German-built 109s, they were using, I believe the Germans were actually, the Spanish Air Force were using these German designs up until Franco's death in 1975. Um, and so there are very few surviving 109s because they were either shot down or scrapped, and there are even fewer surviving airworthy original 109s. And of the ones that survive, they would be, they would, you know, even, you know, if you use the like original German 109 in the Dunkirk movie, it still would have been a noticeable, inaccurate, forgettable, but noticeable because the most widely produced 
of the um, 109s was the 109G, I think. And back then you would have had BF 109s, mostly BF 109Es, the A-meals. Um, so the 109s you see in the uh, in the Dunker movie are Spanish built, but you know to have a real aircraft instead of a CGI one, and you know that that detail, it's it's forgivable. I think oh, it's more than forgivable. Yeah, and so you could tell. So essentially, what you're saying is that the mo it was the sound of the motor in the in the, well, in the make I mean, of it, it, or it looks it looks different. It does look different. You can tell on the outside. That you told me that like when I reached out to you like a year ago. And I have to admit, like David, that is fucking incredible that you know that. Like, oh, I mean, like, well, I mean, anybody who knew, like, anybody who had an interest in like World War II aviation could point that out. But, I but still, it. like, that's incredible. So, like, guys, everyone listening, if you need more proof that like David is like one of the smartest people that I know, like, there you go, because that's fucking incredible that you know that. Because that, like, obviously, that wasn't. Because like some people might say that that's nitpicking, but I think that's yeah. a and it actually it, it is to a degree. But but that knowing that is insane. But like in the best way possible. I appreciate that. Thank but you. Because but then you, you you hit on something like with the with like the planes and stuff. Like they they I think you're the one that actually sent me the stuff that like the behind the scenes footage that they used mixed of you know yeah. model airplanes. So that's a, that's the 109E, which I believe would have been uh, present. Uh, and then that's the Spanish 109. Oh, I see. see different. But th- another reason why it's so forgivable is because uh, the markings were completely right. Um, I mean, for instance, in, in Red Tails, you had you know late late war markings combined with markings that were already obsolete by the time the Spanish Civil War occurred, um, or fantasy markings that just never existed. Uh, meanwhile, for for um, the Dunkirk movie, you had the um, you had the the one hundred nines had yellow noses, which were the markings of Yacht Squadron twenty six, which was one of the most elite squadrons. Actually, they were stationed um, after Dunkirk after France fell. They were stationed in Abil. They were known as the Abil boys. And these guys were hand picked by Herman Gehring. I mean, these were guys like Adolf Galland, um, among others. Um, I mean, Adolf Galland was such a prestigious pilot that. He was. He only someone like Gallant could get away with after being. Ch- you know, Garing was chastising them during the Battle of Britain about their losses. You know, about you know they're not doing so well. And he says, "Well, come on. You know, I'm I'm just trying to help Hitler. How you know I've chastised you enough. How can I help you? What can I do for you? Is there anything I can do for you?" And Gallant said, "Yes, sir. You can bring us a squadron of Spitfires." <laughs> so they had you know the markings of the Abil uh, the Abil boys with the yellow noses. Um, so I mean, yeah, but it's just like. That it is nitpicking, but it's not. It's it's a, it's a forgivable detail. Mm-hmm. Like it'd be nit- I I'd agree if it was you know if you said you know oh, well it's not a forgivable detail they should have done better than that that definitely nit- nitpicking. Everything else I can think of, um, with the ships I I don't know much about military ships I, I should know more but I I'm I think that the ships were accurate definitely more accurate compared to Pearl Harbor because uh. <laughs> I, oh well, yeah, that movie is I mean, fucking they, they sucks. Had, but they had Arleigh Burke class destroyers, which I don't believe existed anytime. Let's see, when were they introduced? Well, I, while you're looking that up, let me. I have two questions for you. One is like a general history question. Yeah. Was okay. So when the when they were bringing in these these ships and like the transports, especially like it seemed like in the film they were really just focusing on the wounded at first, and then but still like these they're taking soldiers out and evacuating. Was this not considered a war crime for the Germans to be shooting transports of wounded and just, like, soldiers? Is that not a war crime? Because um, that was, like, the first thing I was thinking. I was like, 
because I noticed like it seemed like the Germans, like you said, they they literally in the in history and in the film, like they just stopped. And it seemed like they were pretty much like, you know, dropping the pamphlets and, and, and essentially just be like, we're here, they're dive bombing. Um, but and then they were shooting down like, OK, so there's the two Well, ships are being blown up throughout the whole film. But we have two really in-depth like, well, I guess three. So there's the car, there's the transport in the beginning that is, is where Harry Styles uh, One Direction is who did a fantastic job in this did, film, yeah. but he's on this ship. That's his. That transport gets shot down or sunk, and then there's the second one, which is probably the most horrifying scene of the whole Where film. When or no, when when the ship they're in the bow of the ship, and then the torpedo hits it, and then there's the third one. Where it's the bomber, Tom Hardy turns around trying yeah. to save it, but the ship, I, I believe yeah, the ship ultimately sinks. People catch on fire. And so, and like, it's just, like, horrifying. But, like, was this not considered a war crime? Okay, so I mean, the Germans obviously committed a shit ton of war crimes, but well, was this not one? Okay, well, did, do you remember, and did any of those ships have or not have Red Crosses on them? The, the first one did. Okay, that's a war crime. Um, Which bomb, is exactly, I was like, that's... Bombing it, troop ships is not a war crime. It's not fair because you have a bunch of a bunch of troops on board a ship, but I mean it, it's if it's a troop ship, I know that that's not a war crime. I mean, um, we torpedoed each other's troop ships all the time. That's perfectly legal. Bombing hospital ships. Um, the, the, I think the gray area I mean it just becomes it becomes so muddy because I mean the Germans committed many I mean while they did commit many war crimes on the Western Front they generally they generally behaved themselves. But I mean, on the Eastern Front, I mean, uh, the, the German army rape, uh, massacre of Soviet POWs. I mean, there's absolutely disgraceful. It was mostly, you know, black and many shades of gray and a little white. In on the Western Front, the German army behaved themselves. You have massacres like Malmedy and Oradour-sur-Glane most of the time. You know, things like the execution of POWs, shooting down Allied pilots. Most of the time, the people that were responsible for that were the Waffen-SS. I was going to say. Um, because didn't, like, didn't the, uh, correct me if I'm wrong, like, didn't a lot of, like, the Navy guys and, like, a lot of, I guess, like, more, like, traditional, like, nothing that was created from, you know, the Gestapo or the SS, like, they were, like, like, especially the Navy guys, they were just like, all right, like, we're just here to fight a war. We're going to be men about it. Because, I, I, funny enough, well, I don't want to say funny enough, like, my grandfather was... Also in the Navy in World War II, he was 17. Shot, or he was uh, his his um, transport was torpedoed, and he was one of there. Only two lifeboats got out, and he and the other one was lost at sea. And he was telling me that the German um, sub U boat came up. The the captain came out, gave them food and water, oh, and yeah, gave them and gave time. them there. But but if that but and that goes against like what I'm thinking about. Well, I knew that about the Navy, but then you get you know. The um, the uh, uh, the Luftwaffe who were shooting, well, who, who who would shoot um paratrooper or like or shoot, um pilots that were ejecting with their uh with their oh man parachutes. Right. They would they would sh they would actively shoot them, which isn't that's right. Isn't that a, that's like no, that's well, a no. Well, with, with the air war, it becomes like you know stuff like ground warfare and naval warfare. It becomes it's very it's, it's pretty clear cut about what's illegal and what's not. But the problem with the air war is um. There was no precedent for it, and because, like, I mean, it, by today's standards, absolutely, by today's standards, today's laws, um, you know, bombing, you know, like, well, like, you know, shooting down, you know, strafing uh, troops or, you know, carpet bombing cities, 
um, with large civilian concentrations, those would be considered a war crime. But it, it becomes increasingly difficult because there were actually there were no set laws stating that, you know, for instance, like we'll take you know carpet bombing of cities with large civilian populations. There was no law saying that's illegal because I mean you know the the blitz was devastating, but I mean the damage the Germans inflicted on, on Warsaw and London. It doesn't even begin to compare to what the RAF and the Army Air Forces inflicted on Hamburg mm -hmm. and Berlin and Tokyo and Yokohama and Osaka. I mean, the first man-made firestorm in history was when the RAF bombed Hamburg. It was so powerful, people running from the flames got sucked into them. Mm -hmm. um, and you could, you, you could actually see it from the air all the way, I think you see either Cologne or Hamburg, you could see the city burning all the way from the French coast. Hmm. That's how bad it was. So like, you know, people realized, you know, if we're going to call them war criminals, if we held ourselves to the same standards, I mean, we'd be worse war criminals than them. So not a single member of the Luftwaffe was, went to trial for anything involving aerial bombardment. I mean, the, the Soviets and the Chinese... Well, the Soviets did try a couple of Luftwaffe generals for the bombing of Belgrade, and they were executed. I mean, the Soviets, they didn't have the same democratic system. And, of course, the Chinese communists... Um, I think several people were on trial and imprisoned for the bombings of Nanking and Chongqing um, and went to jail for it. But then again, you know, those aren't... Those were, wouldn't have been democratic courts of law. In the democratic court of law, there wasn't a law saying that carpet bombing was a war crime until 1977. So that's why Hermann Goering didn't go to trial for his role as head of the Luftwaffe, but rather as founder of the Gestapo and Hitler's second in command, one of the key uh, creators of the Holocaust, but not involving, you know, the bombings of cities in Spain and Poland and France and Britain. Um, so it becomes very, very difficult. But, I don't know, the regular armed forces of the Luftwaffe, the Kriegsmarine and the Heer of the Army, they... Of course, they committed war crimes, and probably more than definitely, as far as like the regular armed forces, definitely more than the Americans or the British did. But um, I don't know what the statistics are. I'm not sure who was worse, the German armed forces or the Russians, because you know, I mean, what the, what the Russians did okay. in Germany. But I think you know, it's like it becomes a bit of a gray area because uh, I mean, you do hear about. There, there was this um, experiment done with, with POW camps, just regular run-of-the-mill, you know, POWs, not, not even the big fish, where they put, you know, microphones underneath the tables, and you hear stories about Stuka pilots bragging about, you know, you know, seeing a woman with a baby carriage and chasing her down, spraying her with bullets. You hear stories like that, but, like, when it, as horrible as the scene, like, I mean, if it was a hospital ship, that was, oh, that was a war crime. Even then, even if it was Arab board, that was still considered a war crime. Um, it didn't. I, the Germans, of course, the Germans did do it, and the Soviets did it as well. Um, I think, when, you know, sometimes by accident, sometimes not. But the people who, when you could always guarantee that when they bombed the hospital ship, it was deliberate. Was the Japanese? Oh yeah. It was the Japanese on top of that? Their prisoner of war ships, their hell ships, were deliberately unmarked. So. There were many times where ships full of American POWs were sunk by American submarines. Mm -hmm. I mean, when it comes to, like, the, the Japanese disrespect for, disregard for, you know, anything with the Red Cross, they, they were much worse than the Germans ever were. Um, but, I mean, definitely it was there. There's no... I, I don't actually know the statistics of it. It should be easy enough to find out. But 
What, what's your next question? Oh, I was going to ask, so in a film that has a lot of memorable scenes, what was your favorite, or either your favorite or like most, cause, like his favorite kind of, I don't know, I feel like that's not the right word, but what's what's the most memorable scene in your opinion? No, of definitely the, whole film? the one with the, the little fishing boats. Oh, the, oh, so the very end of the film. Yeah, yeah. And, and does that include like the whole, um, when they're on the trains reading the, the Churchill address about Dunkirk? Not as much. Not as much, but I think that's a very, very relevant detail. Um, and I'll, again, attention to, to detail, because I, I found, you know, as a train, I'm a big train enthusiast, I find that a, one of the biggest, in, in a historical movie, some of the biggest details they can overlook is what kind of trains are uh, are used. I mean, I was watching this documentary, you know, that's supposed to be set in the 1840s, and like, I, I'd recognize that line anywhere. It's the Foxfield line. I'd just been there a couple weeks before, and they have an engine that wasn't built until 1874, but I mean, that's just me being nitpicked. But in the Dunkirk movie, they would have been sent to the south, so the railway that would have transported them would have been the southern railway, and I just looked. Southern railway oh, okay. engines were used in the filming of Dunkirk. Interesting. Southern engines, I believe. I wonder what, I wonder what line it was... Uh, I wonder what uh, line it was uh, on. Um... Oh, yes, of course, it was the Swanage Railway, which I believe is actually in the south. Um, but they use southern railway carriages, so that was mm. just another little Even as, like, detail. Even as a detail that yeah. it's there. And, and and it just goes to show, like, he's really trying to... Even the details that he doesn't... And this is what makes, like, you know, the opening scene of, um like, of Saving Private Ryan really great. Like, there's a lot of those details that you wouldn't even see, in, and, and that's... And, and, and Nolan is incorporating that into his script, into his narrative. And he doesn't have to. And he doesn't have to. I believe, let's see, was it actually where they filmed Dunkirk? Because I, because if it was actually filmed on the Swanage Railway, he actually used a place in the south hmm. of England. So, like, because a lot of Heritage Railways were um There's actually only one that was actually a main line. That's Great Central, where I worked. The rest of them were old branch lines. Because hmm. basically... Oh, everyone's heard of Margaret Thatcher and the coal miners. No one's heard oh, of course. Dr. Harold Beeching in the railways. He basically did the same thing. Mm -hmm. I mean, all of these branch lines just were wiped out of existence, and you know, a lot of those were destroyed overnight. But he actually, I'm just looking here, and if I'm correct, he even used, you know, because, like, he actually used a southern railway branch line. Yep, Swanage Railway. Oh. So it, this branch line, well, they would have been on the main line, but he actually used something on the southern line in the same location, so the same part of England. Where they would have come because they would have come up from Southampton and um, oh I forget where else Devon I believe and they would have gone up to London mm. from the south and they used the southern coaches southern locomotives um, even though it's very brief it's just that's like it's just one small detail because I mean you know if he hadn't paid attention to that he could have used you know, London northeastern or the Midlands or Great Western which yeah. is all over different parts of the country but he even paid attention to that detail I mean it's like it, it's awful. and that's him as like I think that he's earning like. Him as a filmmaker, that's like amazing, and like that's great that like your favorite scene was you know with the, the English uh, citizens coming and kind of like yeah. saving saving their boys. I mean, that just that just got to me an emotional part. Like that made me soft. I, I really liked that that scene. Um, and it's not cheesy though. Like it's like it's earned, you know. Because no, I think war films really like really skirt that line and walk that line very thin of of whether it's like over the top or cheesy. Well, they're plenty that they're plenty that don't skirt. They just do it all out. I mean, just. Basically, any movie for between the fifty, any war movie between the fifties and the seventies, with few exceptions. I mean, Longest Day is one of the only exceptions, but then you have all these horrible movies where it's just like everybody's every Nazi's wearing a you know an armband, and it's just like the stereotypical looks more like it belongs to a fetish convention than a mm -hmm. World War Two movie. Yeah. Um, lack of you know total lack of attention to detail. Um, 
I mean, oh, the, the tank scene in Battle of the Bulge. Instead of doing it in winter in a forest, they decide to do it in the dead of... They film the scene in the dead of summer outside of Barcelona. Mm. In a desert. And it doesn't area. work, it yeah. It like a desert. And, and that's like... And that's, it's weird. Like, all the films that are coming out, like, about war, they, they're all are. They're all, like, grotesquely violent. Like, yeah. I'm thinking of, like, Hacksaw Ridge. Oh, yeah. And for oh, some that's reason... That's another one. That and the Pacific are, like, the most. Hacksaw Ridge I liked, but for some reason, like, I just never... Like, I thought... Yeah, comparing, like, the Pacific, like, both in the same theater. And I, I thought that the Pacific had a more immersive and like realistic experience than I, I felt as I was watching Hacksaw Ridge and what took me out of it was like this doesn't feel not not real it just feels artificial which it's obviously the film movie. it's a Mel Gibson movie like it just it, it feels like it's a romanticized version of what actually happened which I think is disrespectful yeah, it's, it's brought to you by the same guy who made the Patriot and yeah we soldiers and it, well, well we, we were, were soldiers, we were soldiers yeah yeah but but so and but my so my favorite scene in this whole film was uh, I keep saying favorite the most memorable scene to me was the, the the sinking of the first ship that they get on because it's this moment that I think perfectly perfectly encapsulates this whole idea of like war is hell and confusion the psychological aspect of war so they it, get, doesn't, it doesn't discriminate death is the great equalizer because there were there were wounded and limbless and there were women on that ship oh I think I oh I think I meant. Not the not the transport with the Red Cross, not the Red Cross transport. The the one at night when yeah, the one at night. Yeah, there. Are, I mean, you had women on troop ships as well. Oh, that's true. Oh yeah, no, there were yeah because they were like you know it's, it's the, the great, nurses. It's the great equalizer, and it's just like it makes you think. You know, you have all these. You've had all these wars. Well, so you know all these all these wars, and it's like, especially like if you take like for instance you know religious wars, which is ironic enough because you like for instance you take you know Jews and Christians and Muslims, they're not the same, but they're all called the Abrahamic religions for a reason. They're all mm -hmm. supposedly children of Abraham, and yet they're all murdering each other or themselves. But then at the end of the day, a Muslim six feet under is just as good as a Christian or a Jew six feet mm -hmm. under. It's, it's no different. Death is the great. Equalizer. Yeah. It doesn't matter what you are six feet under. It doesn't matter how nice your grave is. Yeah. You're still, like you're dead, dead. You're dead. You're dead. It's yeah. And and, it just makes you think about like you know what is it? It makes you think you know like unless it's for a really worthy cause, then what? Why are you even having a war? Like you know like old yeah. wars I believe in are like ones that are for just cause. Where it's actually about freedom. And World War Two was one of the only wars that was genuinely about freedom. Mm -hmm. and, but going back to this one scene, like where I think it really encapsulates like the film, like the themes of just like this chaos and and just it's kind of hellish nature and the psychological aspect. So like our characters, they think they're safe. They get on the ship and they're being herded underground. Or saying underground, I felt like I was being herded underground, well, but they're yeah, going that, in the bowels of the that, ship. That's how you're supposed to feel. That's, that's, but, and then, but they're like having, they're drinking tea. They're having like jam and toast. Like they're all like kind of so laughing. It's so surreal. That's that's war for you. And, and then and immediately, like the the it turns out the, the the mute soldier who's French and just doesn't speak English. He immediately just is like, nope. And I'd be like, yeah, I'm with you, dude. Like I would not want to get in the bowels of that ship. And then, but everyone feels that like that. Everyone does. Everyone wants to run. Everyone wants to crap themselves. Everyone, everyone who's been in a war, anybody who's fought in combat. And I, I know enough people who've been in combat facilities. Every single one of them just wants to just lie in a corner and just cry. And then there are the ones who do and the ones who don't. And most people, I mean, human beings, you know, we, we always, we underestimate ourselves. We don't realize really what we're made of until we're put to the test. And most mm -hmm. of us, you know, put to that test, obviously, you know, 
fight the urge to do that and just go out there and do stuff. And then those of us who don't, don't, but can't fault them for that. It doesn't make them better or worse. It just makes yeah. them, you know, human, just as human as the rest of us. So it just shows you how surreal it is. One second they're drinking tea and the next they're oh, yeah, and, the and then the torpedo comes. And I just, I look, I, I really think it's so effective of that. Like this, this atmosphere of people are like finally relaxed. Like, Oh, I'm going home. Or like, we're at least we're off the beaches of Dunkirk. And then this torpedo comes and then it's immediate. It's, it's so immediate. Like you get this like well-lit area. There's this shake and then water literally just pours into the ship. And, and then you get this chaos. Like they're all just drowning rats. Like there's like, there's so much chaos. You can't see. It's very darkly lit. Um, you just hear like screams. It, it, it very much reminded me of how James Cameron shot like the sinking uh, moments of the Titanic. Yeah. But it's just like, just mass, like this is fear. And like, ironically enough, being a collegiate swimmer, like my biggest fear is drowning. Mm. And so like, this really got me in the moment. I was, and like, this was, there's, there's a few moments in the film that I was literally on the edge of my seats, like gripping, like white knuckling my seat. This was one of them. Uh, fun, I guess it's the moments when like drowning was most, almost like a reality. Um, when the second pilot was trapped in his, um, in his fighter and he couldn't get the, uh, the door open that I was like, Oh my God, come on. And then, and then what's great. Well, so I'll finish that. And then you get the, the French guy just pulling off the ship. You get the white light and they get out, but, and then the ship goes down and you're just like, and then you have the moments like right before the moments before the ship sank, you have guys in lifeboats that are just saying like, come back, help us. Like, don't be cowards. And then the ship sinks and they're immediately like, no, you can't come in here. And then they roll back to shore and then they're back at square one. And I just think that scene is so effective because it, one elicited the strongest emotional response out of me, but also like, I think it encapsulates the whole theme of confusion of war, which is why I think going back to this, the whole nonlinear like perspective of telling, like everything kind of meshes together. And I think it's, it's, it makes the film unique, but also genius in its own way. Yeah. Uh, I haven't had moments. I didn't have moments like that. Um, per se with, with Dunkirk, it didn't hit me on a, on a personal level like that, but I'll, you, you probably, We'll, we'll want to include this in, in your details. You probably think I'm absolutely nuts for this, but anything going to do with the air war, specifically the air American bomber pilots over over Germany, the B-17 pilots, I can handle Holocaust footage. I can handle any kind of gross stuff like that, but I just cannot handle documentaries about the air war and testimonies of them in the footage. I mean, that's in, I mean that's pretty intense. I mean, I be, and I can understand that because like. I guess because I, I, I felt like I've been drowning at times and like, yeah. this is what like really got to me. Um, but yeah, that was like my, that was the scene that stuck with me the most. And I, in, in both like the narrative and like thematic sense, but also like on a more personal level. And yeah. it was like that, like if there was a moment that I was like, like, that's when I, this is when I was convinced like the film is doing its job. Like yeah. the film is, is wanting to like kind of put the viewer and tell the experience of Dunkirk and not so much like an individual, an individual, not so much an individualized. It's so self-defeating to have just an individual. The more you mention it, the more it's, it's coming to me that, that it wouldn't have been. Because I think this is like, it would have been just like, it would have been no different than Hacksaw Ridge. Really? Because I feel like this is like an individualized or I'm sorry. This is a, an experimental war film, which is like, I feel like those two words don't really go hand in hand. Um, and, and not to say, like, films like Hacksaw Ridge, like, I feel like, because these men are incredible, and those, like, indivi those individual but stories, because, well, like, uh, like, Hacksaw Ridge, like, that story, like, it's true, it's when you start getting, it's when you start getting stories like Wind Talkers, where you take, like, a real event, and then you fictionalize it, mm. and you, like, dramatize and romanticize oh, like, oh, it. Oh, like, Memphis Belle, oh, my God, the, okay, the, the one from 1943 was great, because those were 
the real guys. And it was the real thing. But the one from the 90s, I mean, I, I can't believe Robert Morgan, pilot of Memphis Bell, actually allowed himself to be associated with it. But honestly, you know, I think the best kind of war film you could do, and I, it's really hard to make these, especially as, like, there been, I think there are studies, I might be wrong about this, there are studies that the a day in the life of somebody in Iraq is more traumatic and harder to come to grips with than a day in the life of somebody who was in the bulge. Mm -hmm. um, so it's like, I might be wrong about this, I, I think I'm wrong about this, but have you ever heard of these studies where it's just like, in, in some ways, like, the trauma and like the level of it and how it's coped with this is handled worse by veterans of more recent wars that, you know, a, a, a Vietnam or Iraq that is much less likely to be vocal about what he went through than World War II veterans. I mean, I think that, I mean, I think there's a lot of different factors with that. Like, one, I mean, I think with World War II veterans, they've had longer times to, you know, come to terms and, 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 they and were, like... And they were held as heroes on top of that. But, and then, but then you get, like, you know, the changing warfare and, like, and I actually, I had a presentation in a paper about, like, comparing, like, the military and, like, World War II, World War II to, like, you know, Korea, Vietnam, Gulf... Iraq, Afghanistan, like to the modern wars, and like what the shift in war, the shift in warfare, and like the cultural and societal uh, shifts that have occurred, and how we as a nation view warfare, and yeah. and like you know treatment of veterans and things like that. This this you know, there's this interesting book, and I forget what it's called. My father's going to send it to me, but it's actually this book that, through statistics, actually shows that as bad as all the wars we've had in recent times are. We're actually more evolved and more civilized than our ancestors were. Mm -hmm. I mean, the rape of Nanking, okay, that was terrible. You had 700,000 people raped and murdered in a week, but that's nothing compared to Genghis Khan. That's nothing compared to the Gallic Wars. In some ways, we're actually becoming less brutal than we were. I mean, if you think about it, if, you know, in the Middle Ages, they'd had the atomic bomb. I think they would have, you know, you know like, new, you know, thermonuclear bombs, they would have used it. We've had... For 70 years, we've had the power to destroy the human race, which we've never had before. And we've actually, so, so far, we've managed to never use it. Hmm. We must be more evolved than we were more in, in, more in uh, earlier eras. But there's a, a film I saw, and I forget what it's called, it's from 1943. And it's about the fire brigade during the Battle of Britain. Mm -hmm. But none of the people in Interactors, they're actually all the guys who were actually there. Mm -hmm. um, but it's just, you, you can't do that with... A war, well, to a degree, you can, and but the question is, how many people would you be able to get that were actually able to, uh, you know, that are actually able to do it justice? Because I mean, what a vet, you know, a combat veteran from Iraq is going to understand what it was like to be on Peleliu mm -hmm. or Normandy Beach. Um, but I think it would definitely help. I mean, for instance, you know, the, just like another thing about details. Um, I'm guessing you're a Star Wars enthusiast. Oh, of course. In Attack of the Clones, the people in the clone armor are just, you know you know, animators from um, ILM just, you know, in, in blue bodysuits just running around, you know, pointing and pretending to shoot. The people in the blue bodysuits that were doing the clone troopers Revenge of the Sith were United States Marines. Mm -hmm. So if you see the fighting on Utapau and you see all the clones in the motions and the way they carry themselves, it's so much more realistic because the guys behind that are actually U.S. Marines that are doing that. Um, so stuff, just like little details like that. I mean, it's like but with something like World War II, you can't really have people who were there. Mm -hmm. You can't have people who will fully understand. People who have some idea of themselves being combat veterans. But um, I don't know. Where were we going with this? Well, I was going to say, before we get too far off, I was going to say, since I feel like we've discussed the themes and 
the history in, ex- in extensive. I-, I actually might just title this, like, a history lesson, <laughs> and then put, like, Dunkirk in, like, yeah. parentheses. Although which I, is did, great. I did forget a lot of my, the history, though. Damn. I think... I think the I think the listeners and myself have learned quite a lot. So I guess at this point we can go into closing thoughts and then recommendations. So I'll ask you about your closing thoughts and then I'll give okay. mine. And then the, how the rating goes, I just give a film out of uh, out of ten. Okay. Well, what do you what do you base your ratings on? So I mean, I think it's all like subjective and, and, and individualized. I mostly consider like a ten is a perfect film, a nine is an excellent film, an eight to seven is uh, great. Six is good, five is okay, four, three, bad, two, awful, one, trash. What, what, zero is one, zero. What's one? Like, awful. Like, but what movies? Oh, God. Uh, what would you give The Room? Oh, I mean, there's a lot. I would, okay, narratively, I would give The Room, like, uh, a one. Like, it's awful. But, like... On an entertainment, I'd give it like a five. Uh, what about okay? What about the Zugandan B movies? Like who killed Captain Alex? Well, yeah, that well, that <laughs> okay. see, like it's all individualized because like I think a lot of fa- like a lot of factors try and go into my recommendations. So I'll ask you about your closing thoughts on the film of Dunkirk. If if whether that's any, you can say anything you want about the closing film, like what you liked, didn't like. Well, I think I think, I think with many war movies, they're a product of their time, the good ones and the bad ones, because, I mean. You know, during the 60s, you had absolute, you know, trash fires like The Longest Day. And you also had, well, I mean, The Great Escape is so popular and it was so beloved. Um, There were lots of inaccuracies in it. Many, Mm -hmm. many, many inaccuracies, but it's just, it's that good of a film for some reason. I mean, you know, the the cast, I mean, also, I mean, it's not about the Jesus. I mean, you know, the actual story of The Escape was pretty faithful to what happened. Even if it, you know, for a 1960s war movie, but it was just, it was that good. But meanwhile, like, you know, Battle of the Bulge, I was just absolute trash fire. And I, but um, I think all war movies are a product of their time. And I think, you know, for a movie from 2017 where it's, you know, everything's in 4K, it's as they saw it. And shot on IMAX, too. Exactly. Nolan's a big uh, proponent of, of shooting IMAX. So you get that really crisp, wide edge. And, like, it's a, it's a, it's a very interesting way to see this film. It's, like, like on this huge screen. I'd give it, an abs- I'd give it a 10, absolutely. Oh, okay. I, I, absolutely, because I can't really think of anything wrong with it. I mean, it, it covered everybody. It covered... The brave men and women of the civil of the fishing fleet, you know the, the civilian fleet. You, you covered, you know, the the nurses. It covered the colonial troops for both the British and the French. It captured the essence. It got the point across. It got the point across because the main character was, as you said so long ago, Dunkirk was the main character of the story. Um, I mean, the quality, the details, the accuracy, uh, the emotion. I, I can't really see that there was much. That there was really much wrong with it. And of course, I mean, the soundtrack was deliberately... I think screw you. The, we didn't talk the about soundtrack, it. and I, th- I believe the... Um, I think this won a Best Oscar for sound design. Something like that. So, I, and, so, I mean, and it's deservedly so. Like, yeah, soundtrack and everything. Like, it's just top-notch. Yeah, when it comes to World War II movies, actually, the, the best ones, I think, are the ones that have come out in the last 20 years. And the ones... The best... The best ones are the ones that came out in recent years and the ones that came out during the war and right afterwards. The worst ones were the ones in between or ones that are recent. But I mean, it's just like, 
they're, they're actually there were some you know bad World War Two movies made during the war, but they're bad for different reasons. Like I mean, there's an excellent World War Two movie from nineteen forty two. It's called Casablanca, mm-hmm. and Again, it's a product of its time. I'm guessing I should get into recommendations now. Well, I'll do my closing thoughts. So, because I think that was one of the questions, but I think that's an episode entirely on its own of just okay. like kind of the history of of like World War II cinema, like American cinema focusing on World War II. Right. And I, I would love to get with you like sometime in the next next in uh, soon in the immediate right. future but, to have sit down and, and like you know we'll take our notes and record it right. so I'll, I'll go with my closing thoughts so yeah I, I essentially agree with you on so many points that details narrative it's unique in itself it, it's Nolan is you know keeps getting better and better with each film like t- he's at the he's at his absolute best right here I absolutely love this film um, so many things work I mean I think like if I we're going to nitpick and just, you know, some flaws. Like, I think sometimes the nonlinear story can get a little too ambitious and, like, yeah. you know, jumping from day to night and then back to day, like, in a span of, like, five minutes mm-hmm. without kind of – not so much explaining it. Like, because what I love about Nolan is he he holds his audience to a very high standard of Good. intelligence – Unlike, you know, Michael Bay. Or, like, other filmmakers that, like, may, might try and, like, tackle something like this. Like, they have to handhold, and Nolan does not handhold throughout this film. Like, he wants you to figure this out and notice those details. So... I think that's something that's often lost. I mean, you have people like Michael Bay or J.J. Abrams, or everything has to be explained. Yeah, but I, Nolan is definitely not that, definitely so... Not, no. So, what would you give Dunkirk out of ten... David, well, what is your recommendation? Definitely ten, because I can't really see much much wrong with it. I can't really see anything to mm-hmm. nitpick. I mean, they, they got every detail they could get, and then some. Um, they got details that you know it wouldn't have occurred to you know to other people um, to do. Um, and that's and, and that's, that's respectable. They, I mean, the cast. I mean, you had Ken Branagh, who's you know well you know he's well accustomed to doing World War Two movies. He played Heydrich in Conspiracy. Mm-hmm. Um, you have Tom Hardy, who was in Band of Brothers, mm-hmm. and very very oh yeah yeah back when he was a yeah very um, as a lot of those actors were in there. But that's you know a conversation. But yeah, I I completely agree with you. Like everything is top notch, and I. Uh, I'm not gonna go ten out of ten, but I'm definitely gonna give it a uh, an eight point five out of ten. One one out of ten. Uh, just for those um, well, one I, I guess I'm one of those people that like, I only consider like very few films perfect. I think Whiplash is a ten I out of ten. I remember that. Well, I you should definitely see it if you if any sometime soon. I think that's like a near that's like a perfect film in my opinion. But I think like definitely um. That, that idea, like I said, of like the nonlinear, I think it'd be a little bit too ambitious. It can kind of be a little drawing and taxing. You know, Pulp Fiction was certainly more, you know, it didn't, like, Pulp Fiction is the same nonlinear storyline, but I don't think it was as well, it wasn't as, it didn't have, yield the same level of results that Dunkirk, almost at the same level of results, mm-hmm. but Dunkirk was much better in that. Yeah, and they use it in different ways, and, and, and they're trying to accomplish different goals, but... I, I definitely really appreciate it. Definitely 8.5 out of 10. I think everyone should see this film. I, I think it's it's just a testament to amazing and masterful uh, filmmaking. But so David, um, we've been talking for over an hour and a half, and honestly, we could be talking about we could probably have an episode that's like four hours long. Oh, but yeah. I think we've bombarded the people with a lot of information, oh, and yes. I hopefully people are gonna love this. Do your podcast um, usually last this long? Oh, yeah. I think the longest episode we've had was like two and a half hours or so. So, 
But yeah, man, no, uh, David, thank you for coming oh, on to the pleasure. show. Thank and, you for having me. De- I definitely want to have you back on at no, some point I'd love to be back in the on. near future, talking about World War II films, you know, cinema throughout, like, the, the trends of cinema throughout the yeah. 1940s to modern day. Oh, well, I need to brush up on that, because even I haven't seen enough 40s films. Oh, well, we'll, 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 we'll I'll give you ample time to prepare yeah. for that. But anyway, uh, David, where can we reach you on, um, where the listeners can uh, You can reach me on Instagram. I'm at that40skid. Um that and then the number 40 skid uh that's my instagram you're more than welcome to follow me it's a public profile for a reason and i'll, and I'll put and i'll link this as Sweet, well yeah. i'll put it on there and uh yeah so guys thank you for joining this episode of amateur tours hope you all enjoyed it you can find us on social media and um as always see you next time thank you for listening to this episode of amateur all tours cover design was created by sarah jacobs You can find more of her work at our own website, Digital Adventures. The opening theme, Dreams, is composed by Joachim Karid. This composition was found using a Creative Commons search. As a small plug, go check out both Sarah and Joachim's work. They are really great and deserve the attention. If you want to drop us a line, which we full-heartedly support, please feel free to contact us at our email, theamateurautorspodcast at gmail.com. Remember, that is one word. You can also find us at Twitter at Amateur Altours Pod. Once again, thank you for supporting the show. Stay tuned for more episodes, and thank you once again.